Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 4, Episode 6. Uh, today's episode, as you probably will have guessed, is going to be slightly different. It's been a pretty strange week. I want to say straight off the bat that I, I make this podcast really as an escape. Um, I, I'm not sure if everybody knows the story, but but basically when I started making this podcast, it, it was really an escape because I was suffering from quite a lot of anxiety at the time. Um, and, and I just used the podcast as a way to kind of escape that. And I kind of hope that a lot of people use the podcast as an escape as well. So I'm not going to be talking about the current dreaded C word situation any more than what I have to, um, which is this very stout bit. So just bear with me for a couple of minutes and then, and then we'll get going. Basically, nothing will have to change with the podcast going forward. I record at home. All of the archives are closed in England for the foreseeable. But I have lined up a series of episodes that I can do that I have all the sources for already. Um, so, you know, the next few months I've already got that sorted. So, I, I don't, you know, I, I can do that um, because I'd say about half of the episodes I, I actually have sources for already and about half of episodes I have to then sort of go to extra places or, or, or you know, speak to people in, in, in institutions and stuff to try and get sources. So I've basically, I've lined up some enough episodes that for the next few months at least, I've got all the sources where they need to be. That said, this week's episode is going to be slightly different. I, I thought it was going to be okay. I did start making an episode for this week. In fact, I finished it. The whole time I was working on it, I thought it was going to be okay. The problem is, is Dark Histories is like... a the two weeks that I have between releases, that's the full turnaround period for an episode of Dark Histories, basically. So when I started working, it was two weeks ago, um, and I had no idea what was going to be happening now, what's happening. Um, and the episode, I thought was fine anyway, which is why I continued to work on it, um, because it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek, not tongue-in-cheek, but a lighter Dark Histories episode, one of those kind of quirky folktale sort of stories from the 1600s but the problem is is it was set in Italy and Spain and in light of the situation there now when I got around to recording it a few days ago it, it just didn't feel right um I, I just felt like it was slightly tasteless um there was although like I say it was like a quirky episode I don't, it just didn't feel right to me and I still had to deal with some of the background stuff like 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 painting the background picture for you and it was dealing with like the Inquisition and things like that and I it just didn't feel right. So 
you know, all I can do in that situation is, is go with my gut. And my gut said, this isn't right. So um, what I've done is I've benched that episode. I, I will release it. Um, it's a great story, so it will be released, but just not now. So, the, but, but that obviously left me in a, in a difficult position because then I had two days to get the Dark Histories episode done. So that leads me to this episode and what we're going to be doing. I was adamant that I wanted to get an episode of some kind out because I got a couple of emails this week from people and they, they, they did say to me, you know, like, thanks for making the podcast. It's it's a great escape for me in, in, at the moment. And and that, you know, I've, I feel like I have like a certain duty to that. And and, and I'm quite proud of that as well. You know, I'm, I'm really pleased if this can help somebody. Brilliant. Like, you know, this silly little thing can... can be, be a positive force for somebody anywhere in the world right now or any time really. You know, like I say, when I started making it, I did it because I was suffering anxiety and, and you know, I sometimes get emails from people saying, you know, perhaps I shouldn't say it, but your your podcast really helps me to sleep, for example. Well, actually, I, I love that, that it helps them to sleep because, you know, I've had trouble sleeping and it's a nightmare. So, it, you know, although ideally I would like them to listen to it, <laughs> if it helps them sleep it helps them sleep that's a great thing you know I feel like I've achieved something positive so I was adamant that I wanted to get an episode out so what we're going to do I had really good feedback about the MR James story um, from the Christmas episode so what I thought I would do is is do like an introduction to MR James and then read a couple of MR James stories um, because they're amazing ghost stories and he's not as famous as he should be Um, or you know he is pretty famous but he's not you know, I don't think he's like the household name that like Lovecraft is or something like that, you know. So I thought I would kind of do a int- little introduction to M.R. James and then say I've picked a couple of stories. I've picked one that is kind of very well regarded as one of his best and I've picked one that is just one of my personal favourites. Um, and I'm going to read those for you. Uh, so like I say, it's different, but it will be a fun episode. Ghost stories are brilliant fun for everybody I think I think everybody loves a ghost story and M.R. James is, is basically the, the father of the modern ghost story so um, yeah uh, let's get into that I just want to say thank you to all the patrons who are supporting obviously I know appreciate it right now things are difficult for everybody um, I, I haven't got a job at the moment <laughs> anymore uh, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that so you know thank you for your support understand completely if you can't support right now or you know if you did support and you've dropped it or or whatever like of course do what you gotta do um but for those that are supporting thank you very much Uh, obviously like making dark histories i have quite a bit of outgoings um for all the archive subscriptions and and just to keep it all running basically so yeah no it's very much appreciated um anyway that's the end of that and I promise from now on, I will not talk about any of that stuff. We'll just be dark histories as usual. Anyway, let's get on to this MR James. So what I thought I'd do is say, just kind of introduce MR James. I've, I've written, I, I, I've sort of knocked together a short kind of biography that I, I'm just going to talk it through casually. I wrote it out like a script, but now I read it, I feel like I just, just talk it out a bit more casual and then we'll get into his stories. So... M.R. James, he was born in Dover in Kent, which is actually not far from me. Um, it's the very southeast of England. Dover's quite famous because it 
obviously attaches England to mainland Europe. So possibly you know that even if you're not from England. Um, but that's where he was born in 1862. Uh, his name's obviously M.R. James, but that's Montague Rhodes James. Um, and he was the fourth child of Herbert and Mary Emily James. He had two older brothers and an older sister. And his father was a graduate of Eton and Cambridge and was, at the time of his birth, um, an Anglican clergyman. They lived together um, in a rectory in Suffolk, which um, is actually where a lot of his stories are set. And you'll, if you sort of get into reading them, you'll notice that they're all kind of set in a, in a similar area of England, which is that kind of Suffolk or the southeast um, generally tend to be. But, you know, so how did he get into writing ghost stories? So he enrolled at Eton School in 1876 and then he secured a scholarship to Cambridge. Um, so he, he basically completely followed in his father's what-what footsteps and, you know, uh, kept the family tradition of going to the posh schools. Uh, and then... It, after his graduation at Cambridge, he stayed on as a don, a junior dean, and then he became a tutor and eventually ended up as the provost of, I think, King's College, Cambridge, um, in 1905. So he was basically the, like the head of the college of, uh, of, of King's College uh, in 1905. And, one of, and that's kind of where his ghost stories come in because he was a... a a well-respected scholar, and still is. Um, and he wrote on... Um, he studied double classics at Cambridge, and he went on to become like a medievalist um, historian, scholar. And that's what he's kind of famous for, you know. He's he's well-published in that sector, he's, you know, and very well-respected even today. Um, he published probably upwards of like 20... 15, 20-ish kind of books and papers are on that subject. But one of his hobbies whilst he was at Cambridge throughout his school time there and also the time when he, he stayed on afterwards as Dean and Provost and whatnot, he had this kind of hobby, I guess you'd call it, of gathering together students, sort of getting them around a candlelight and telling ghost stories that he'd written. I mean, in general, he had a bit of a flair for drama. He he was um, he did go on to do a little bit of acting as well. So I think he kind of, you know, he really hammed it up. He was really into that. And his ghost stories are interesting in that they they do draw on his specialist subject as well. So you you tend to find that a lot of his books. Like if you, like his style, like his Jamesian style, if you like, leans heavily into the idea of damp, cold English winter, of, you know, rural England. Um, they generally tend to feature kind of quite scholarly characters, and and the characters would quite often be described these days as probably quite stiff upper lip and cold, perhaps. He leans heavily into the idea of like antique objects or antiquities, which is. Say so that was his specialist subject, and he he, did, he leans quite heavily into the idea of that these kind of objects out of time or, or curio would somehow link or bridge the the current world that, that the story is set in to some sort of supernatural world or force or or being, and and that would usually be from beyond the grave. 
we'll see that straight away in, in the first story that I've picked. It's kind of a classic Jamesian story, really. Um, but he, I mean, his work has gone on to influence huge amounts of horror. People like Lovecraft um, actually wrote about James several times, sort of in admiration of him. You can see in Lovecraft, I don't think he's necessarily super influenced, but there are elements of Lovecraft that you can definitely see in James, um, especially the idea that what you don't see is is scarier than what you do or what you don't say is scarier than what you do. Um, that's obviously like a huge Lovecraft thing, but James really kind of spearheaded that before. Um, and Stephen King, it, you know, it goes all the way up from basically like Lovecraft to Stephen King. Um, and the, the Shining, which is like an amazing Stephen King, you know, absolute classic. It's probably one of the most famous sort of modern works that, that are really influenced by M.R. James, I would say, personally. And so like that's pretty much why, why people kind of call him the father of like the modern ghost story. You know, like he, he pulled ghost stories out of the, the, the gothic kind of tropes of the time and and put them into a, a new perspective, I guess, a more modern perspective. He died in 1830, sorry, 1936. But there are, you know, plenty of quotes from him and stuff. And it, I, I found this quote from him about his beliefs and I thought it was really interesting, you know, someone who spent so much time writing about supernatural ghost stories and, and whatnot. When he was asked about if he believed in ghosts himself, he just replied, I answer that I am prepared to consider evidence and accept it if it satisfies me, which I really liked. I thought that's, 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 that's really good. The two stories that I'm going to be reading in this episode, the first one's called The Mezzotint um, and or The Mezzotint. And I really wanted to include this one in the Christmas episode because in the Christmas episode, I started with the James story. But... I had to start with quite a short James story because it was just an introduction to the episode, really. So I had to kind of pick one of his shorter, like really short ones. I mean, none of his stories are, are super long. Um, they're, they're all kind of short stories. He's written a few that kind of lean somewhat towards novellas, but not really. I would say they're all kind of in that at that that kind of five to ten thousand words generally. But this one was, was just, it was just a bit too long as like an introduction to the Christmas episode. So um, I thought I was definitely including this. And it's, it's one of his kind of most famous and, and well-known. And it's also one of my favourites. And the second one that I thought we'd read is, is a bit more of an obscurity and it's less famous. But it's, for my money, one of the most creepiest of his stories and that's um, the story of an appearance and a disappearance. The, the Metzotin came from his first book. He published four. Well, he published a bunch of works, but he published four kind of anthology works, which are kind of the bulk of his work. The first one was called Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, and that was in 1904. Then he published more stories, more, more Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, and that was in 1911, I believe. I've actually got this written down. I should probably check. Yes, and then after that, he he published A Thin Ghost and Others in 1919, and then A Warning of the Curious and Other Ghost Stories um, in 1925. Uh, there is like four anthology like works, and say this: the first one, the Mezzotint, comes from Ghost Stories of Antiquary from 1904, 
The second one comes from a Thin Ghost anthology, which was 1919. So, yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. This is M.R. James's The Mezzotin. Some time ago, I believe I had the pleasure of telling you the story of an adventure which happened to a friend of mine by the name of Denniston during his pursuit of objects of art for the museum at Cambridge. He did not publish his experiences very widely upon his return to England, but they could not fail to become known to a good many of his friends, and among others, to the gentleman who at the time presided over an art museum at another university. It was to be expected that the story should make a considerable impression on the mind of a man whose vocation lay in lines similar to Deniston's, and that he should be eager to catch at any explanation of the matter which tended to make it seem improbable that he should ever be called upon to deal with so agitating an emergency. It was indeed somewhat consoling to him to reflect that he was not expected to acquire ancient MSS for his institution. That was the business of the Shelburneian Library. The authorities of that institution might, if they please, ransack obscure corners of the continent for such matters. He was glad to be obliged at the moment to confine his attention to enlarging the already unsurpassed collection of English topographical drawings and engravings possessed by his museum. Yet, as it turned out, even a department so homely and familiar as this may have its dark corners. And to one of these, Mr Williams was unexpectedly introduced. Those who have taken even the most limited interest in the acquisition of topographical pictures are aware that there is one London dealer whose aid is indispensable to their researchers. Mr J.W. Britnell publishes at short intervals very admirable catalogues of a large and constantly changing stock of engravings, plans and old sketches of mansions, churches and towns in England and Wales. These catalogues were, of course, the ABC of his subject to Mr Williams. But as his museum already contained an enormous accumulation of topographical pictures, he was a regular rather than a copious buyer. And he rather looked at Mr Britnell to fill up gaps in the rank and file of his collection than to supply him with rarities. Now, in February of last year, there appeared upon Mr Williams' desk at the museum a catalogue from Mr Britnell's emporium, and accompanying it was a typewritten communication from the dealer himself. This letter ran as follows. Dear Sir, We beg to call your attention to number 978 in our accompanying catalogue, which we shall be glad to send on approval. Yours faithfully, J.W. Britnell. To turn to number 978 in the accompanying catalogue was with Mr. Williams, as he observed to himself, the work of a moment, and in the place indicated, he found the following entry. 978. Unknown. Interesting mezzotint. View of a manor house, early part of the century. 15 by 10 inches, black frame, £2.02. Two it was not specially exciting, and the price seemed high. However, as Mr Britnell, who knew his business and his customer, seemed to set store by it, Mr Williams wrote a postcard asking for the article to be sent on approval, along with some other engravings and sketchings, which appeared in the same catalogue and so he passed without much excitement of anticipation to the ordinary labours of the day. A parcel of any kind always arrives a day later than you expect it, and that of Mr Britnell proved, as I believe the right phrase goes, no exception to the rule. 
It was delivered at the museum by the afternoon post of Saturday, after Mr. Williams had left his work, and it was accordingly brought round to his rooms in college by the attendant, in order that he might not have to wait over Sunday before looking through it and returning such of the contents as he did not propose to keep. And here he found it when he came in to tea with a friend. The only item with which I am concerned was the rather large black frame mezzo tint, of which I have already quoted the short description given in Mr. Britnell's catalogue. Some more details of it will have to be given, though I cannot hope to put before you the look of the picture as clearly as it is present to my own eye. Very nearly the exact duplicate of it may be seen in a good many old inn parlours or in the passages of undisturbed country mansions at the present moment. It was a rather indifferent mezzotint, and an indifferent mezzotint is, perhaps, the worst form of engraving known. It presented a full-face view of a not very large manor house of the last century, with three rows of plain sashed windows with rusticated masonry about them, a parapet with balls or vases at the angles, and a small portico in the centre. On either side were trees, and in front of a considerable expanse of lawn, the legend AWF Sculpsit was engraved on the narrow margin, and there was no further inscription. The whole thing gave the impression that it was the work of an amateur. What in the world Mr. Britton could mean by affixing the price of two pounds two shillings to such an object was more than Mr. Williams could imagine. He turned it over with a good deal of contempt. Upon the back was a paper label, the left-hand half of which had been torn off. All that remained were the ends of two lines of writing. The first had the letters Ngli Hall. The second, Sex. It would, perhaps, be just worthwhile to identify the place represented, which he could easily do with the help of a gazetteer, and then he would send it back to Mr. Britnell with some remarks reflecting upon the judgment of that gentleman. He lighted the candles, for it was now dark, made the tea, and supplied the friend with whom he had been playing golf, for I believe the authorities of the university I write of indulge in that pursuit by way of relaxation, and tea was taken to the accompaniment of a discussion for which golfing persons can imagine for themselves, but which the conscientious writer has no right to inflict upon any non-golfing persons. The conclusion arrived at was that certain strokes might have been better, and that in certain emergencies, neither player had experienced the amount of luck which a human being has a right to expect. It was now that the friend, let's call him Professor Binks, took up the framed engraving and said, "'What's this place, Williams?' Just what I'm going to try to find out, said Williams, going to the shelf for a gazetteer. Look at the back. Something Lee Hall, or other, either in Sussex or Essex. Half the name's gone, you see. You don't happen to know it, I suppose. It's from that man Britnell, I suppose, isn't it? said Binks. Is it for the museum? Well, I think I should buy it if the price was five shillings, said Williams. But for some unearthly reason, he wants two guineas for it. I can't conceive why. It's a wretched engraving, and there aren't even any figures to give it life. It's not worth two guineas, I should think, said Binks. But I don't think it's so badly done. The moonlight seems rather good to me, and I should have thought there were figures, or at least a figure, just on the edge in front. Let's look, said Williams. Well, it's true the light is rather cleverly given. Where's your figure? Oh, yes just the head, in the very front of the picture. And indeed there was. 
hardly more than a black blot on the extreme edge of the engraving. The head of a man or woman, a good deal muffled up. The back turned to the spectator and looking towards the house. Williams had not noticed it before. Still, he said, though it's a cleverer thing than I thought, I can't spend two guineas of museum money on a picture of a place I don't know. Professor Binks had his work to do, and soon went, and very nearly up to the whole time, Williams was engaged in a vain attempt to identify the subject of his picture. If the vowel before the NG had only been left, it would have been easy enough, he thought. But as it is, the name may be anything from Guestingly to Langley, and there are many more names ending like this than I thought. And this rotten book has no index of terminations. Hall in Mr. Williams' college was at seven. It need not be dwelt upon, the less so as he met their colleagues who had been playing golf during the afternoon and words with which he had no concern were freely bandied across the table. Merely golfing words, I would hasten to explain. I suppose an hour or more to have been spent in what is called common room after dinner. Later in the evening, some few retired to Williams' rooms, and I have little doubt that whist was played and tobacco smoked. During a lull in these operations, Williams picked up the mezzo tint from the table without looking at it and handed it to a person mildly interested in art, telling him where it had come from and the other particulars which we already know. The gentleman took it carelessly, looked at it, and then said in a tone of some interest, It's really a very good piece of work, Williams. It has quite a feeling of the romantic period. The light is admirably managed, it seems to me, and the figure, though it's rather too grotesque, is, is somehow very impressive. Yes, isn't it, said Williams, who was just then busy giving whiskey and soda to others of the company, was unable to come across the room to look at the view again. It was by this time, rather late in the evening, and the visitors were on the move. After they went, Williams was obliged to write a letter or two and clear up some of the odd bits of work. At last, sometime past midnight, he was disposed to turn in and he put out his lamp after lighting his bedroom candle. The picture lay face upwards on the table where the last man who looked at it had put it and it caught his eye as he turned the lamp down. What he saw made him very nearly drop the candle on the floor and he declares now if he had been left in the dark at that moment he would have had a fit. But as that did not happen, he was able to put down the light on the table and take a good look at the picture. It was injubitable, rankly impossible no doubt, but absolutely certain. In the middle of the lawn, in front of the unknown house, there was a figure where no figure had been at five o'clock that afternoon. It was crawling on all fours towards the house, and it was muffled in a strange black garment with a white cross on the back. I do not know what is the ideal course to pursue in a situation of this kind, I can only tell you what Mr. Williams did. He took the picture by one corner and carried it across the passage to a second set of rooms which he possessed. There he locked it up in a drawer, sported the doors of both sets of rooms and retired to bed. But first he wrote out and signed an account of the extraordinary change which the picture had undergone since it had come into his possession. Sleep visited him rather late, but it was consoling to reflect that the behaviour of the picture did not depend upon his own unsupported testimony. Evidently, the man who had looked at it the night before had seen something of the same kind as he had. Otherwise, 
He might have been tempted to think that something gravely wrong was happening, either to his eyes or his mind. This possibility being fortunately precluded, two matters awaited him on the morrow. He must take stock of the picture very carefully and call in a witness for the purpose, and he must make a determined effort to ascertain what house it was that was represented. He would therefore ask his neighbour Nisbet to breakfast with him, and he would subsequently spend the morning over the gazetteer. Nisbet was disengaged, and he arrived at about twenty past nine. His host was not quite dressed, I'm sorry to say, even at this late hour. During breakfast, nothing was said about the mezzotint by Williams, save that he had a picture on which he wished for Nisbet's opinion. But those who are familiar with university life can picture for themselves the wide and delightful range of subjects over which the conversation of two fellows of Canterbury College is likely to extend during a Sunday morning breakfast. Hardly a topic was left unchallenged, from golf to lawn tennis. Yet I am bound to say that Williams was rather distraught, for his interest naturally centred in that very strange picture which was now reposing, face downwards, in the drawer in the room opposite. The morning pipe was at last lighted, and the moment had arrived for which he looked. With very considerable, almost tremulous excitement, he ran across, unlocked the drawer, and extracting the picture, still face downwards, ran back and put it into Nisbet's hands. Now, he said, Nisbet, I want you to tell me exactly what you see in that picture. Describe it, if you don't mind, rather minutely. I'll tell you why afterwards. Well, said Nisbet, I have here a view of a country house, English, I presume, by moonlight. Moonlight, be sure of that. Certainly, the moon appears to be on the wane, if you wish for details, and there are clouds in the sky. All right, go on, I'll swear, added Williams in an aside. There was no moon when I saw it first. Well, there's not much more to be said, Nisbet continued. The house has one, two, three rows of windows, five in each row, except at the bottom, where there's a porch instead of the middle one, and... But what about figures, said Williams, with marked interest. There aren't any, said Nisbet. But... What? No figure on the grass in front? Not a thing. You'll swear to that? Certainly I will, but there's just one other thing. What? Why, one of the windows on the ground floor. Left of the door. It's open. Is it really so? My goodness, he must have got in, said Williams with great excitement, and he hurried to the back of the sofa on which Nisbet was sitting, and, catching the picture from him, verified the matter for himself. It was quite true. There was no figure, and there was the open window. Williams, after a moment of speechless surprise, went to the writing table and scribbled for a short time. Then he brought two papers to Nisbet and asked him first to sign one. It was his own description of the picture, which he had just heard, and then to read the other, which was Williams' statement, written the night before. What can it all mean? said Nisbet. Exactly, said Williams. Well, one thing I must do, or three things now I think of it, I must find out from Garwood this was his last night's visitor, what he saw, and then I must get the thing photographed before it goes further, and then I must find out what this place is. I can do the photographing myself, said Nisbet, and I will, but you know it looks very much as if it were assisting at the working out of a tragedy somewhere. This question is, has it happened already, or is it going to come off? 
You must find out what the place is. Yes, he said, looking at the picture again. I expect you're right. He has got in. And if I don't mistake, there'll be the devil to pay in one of the rooms upstairs. I'll tell you what, said Williams. I'll take the picture across to Old Green. This was the senior fellow of the college who had been bursar for many years. It's quite likely he'll know it. He has property in Essex and Sussex, and he must have been over the two counties a lot in his time. Quite likely he will, said Nisbet. But just let me take my photograph first. But look here, I rather think Green isn't up today. He wasn't in Hall last night, and I think I heard him say he was going down for the Sunday. That's true too, said Williams. I know he's gone to Brighton. Well, if you'll photograph it now, I'll go across to Garwood and get his statement, and you keep an eye on it whilst I'm gone. I'm beginning to think two guineas is not a very exorbitant price for it now. In a short time, he had returned and brought Mr. Garwood with him. Garwood's statement was to the effect that the figure, when he had seen it, was clear on the edge of the picture, but had not gone far across the lawn. He remembered a white mark on the back of its drapery, but could have not been sure it was a cross. A document to this effect was then drawn up and signed, and Nisbet proceeded to photograph the picture. Now what do you mean to do, he said. You going to sit and watch it all day? Well, no, I think not, said Williams. I rather imagine we're meant to see the whole thing. You see, between the time I saw it last night and this morning, there was time for lots of things to happen. But the creature only got into the house. It could easily have got through its business in the time and gone to its own place again. But the fact of the window being open, I think, must mean that it's in there now. So I feel quite easy about leaving it. And besides, I have a kind of idea that it wouldn't change much, if at all, in the daytime. We might go out for a walk this afternoon and come into tea or whenever it gets dark. I shall leave it on the table here and sport the door. My skip can get in, but no one else. The three agreed that this would be a good plan and further, that if they spent the afternoon together, they would be less likely to talk about the business to other people, for any rumour of such a transaction as was going on would bring the whole of the phasmatological society about their ears. We may give them a respite until five o'clock. At or near that hour, the three were entering Williams's staircase. They were, at first, slightly annoyed to see that the door of his room was unsported, but in a moment it was remembered that on Sunday the skips came for orders an hour or so earlier than on weekdays. However, a surprise was waiting them. The first thing they saw was the picture leaning up against a pile of books on the table as it had been left, and the next thing was Williams's skip, seated on the chair opposite, gazing at it with undisguised horror. How was this? Mr. Filcher, the name is not my own invention, was a servant of considerable standing and set the standard of etiquette to all at his own college and to several neighbouring ones. And nothing could be more alien to his practice than to be found sitting on his master's chair or appearing to take any particular notice of his master's furniture or pictures. Indeed, he seemed to feel this himself. He started violently when the three men were in the room and got up with a marked effort. Then he said, I ask your pardon, sir, for taking such a freedom as to sit down. Not at all, Robert, interposed Mr. Williams. I was meaning to ask you some time what you thought of that picture. Well, sir, of course, I don't set up my opinion against yours, but it ain't the picture I should hang where my little girl could see it, sir. Wouldn't you, Robert? Why not? 
No, sir. Why, the poor child. I recollect once she see a Bible with pictures, not half what that is, and we'd had to sit up with her three or four nights afterwards, if you'll believe me. And if she was to catch a sight of this skeleton here, or whatever it is, carrying off that poor baby, she would be in taking. You know how it is with children, how nervous they get with a little thing and all. But what I should say, it don't seem a right picture to be laying about, sir. Not where anyone that's liable to be startled could come on it. Should you be wanting anything this evening, sir? Thank you, sir. With these words, the excellent man went to continue the round of his masters, and you may be sure the gentleman whom he left lost no time in gathering around the engraving. There was the house, as before, under the waning moon and the drifting clouds. The window that had been open was shut, and the figure was once more on the lawn, but not this time crawling cautiously on hands and knees. Now it was erect and stepping swiftly with long strides towards the front of the picture. The moon was behind it and the black drapery hung down over its face so that only hints of that could be seen and what was visible made the spectators profoundly thankful that they could see no more than a white dome-like forehead and a few straggling hairs. The head was bent down and the arms were tightly clasped over an object which could be dimly seen and identified as a child. Whether dead or living, it was not possible to say. The legs of the appearance alone could be plainly discerned, and they were horribly thin. From five to seven, the three companions sat and watched the picture by turns, but it never changed. They agreed at last that it would be safe to leave it, and that they would return after hall and await further developments. When they assembled again at the earliest possible moment, the engraving was there, but the figure was gone and the house was quiet under the moonbeams. There was nothing for it but to spend the evening over gazetteers and guidebooks. Williams was the lucky one at last, and perhaps he deserved it. At 11.30pm, he read from Murray's Guide to Essex the following lines. Sixteen and a half miles, Anningley. The church has been an interesting building of Norman date, but was extensively classicised in the last century. It contains the tomb of the family of Francis, whose mansion, Anningley Hall, a solid Queen Anne house, stands immediately beyond the churchyard in a park of around 80 acres. The family is now extinct, the last heir having disappeared mysteriously in infancy in the year 1802. The father, Mr Arthur Francis, was locally known as a talented amateur engraver in mezzotint. After his son's disappearance, he lived in complete retirement at the hall and was found dead in his studio on the third anniversary of the disaster, having just completed an engraving of the house, impressions of which are of considerable rarity. This looked like business, and, indeed, Mr Green on his return at once identified the house as Anningley Hall. Is there any kind of explanation of the figure, Green? was the question which Williams naturally asked. I don't know, I'm sure, Williams, what was used to be said in that place when I first knew it, which was where I came up here, was just this. Old Francis was always very much down on these poaching fellows, and whenever he got a chance, he used to get a man whom he suspected of it turned off his estate. And by degrees, he got rid of them all but one. Squires could do a lot of things then that they didn't think of now. Well, this man that was left was what you find pretty often in that country, 
the last remains of a very old family. I, I believe they were lords of the manor at one time. I recollect just the same thing in my own parish. What, like the man in Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Williams put in. Yes, dare I say. It's not a book I could ever read myself, but this fellow could show a row of tombs in the church there that belonged to his ancestors, and all that went to sour him a bit. But Francis, they said, could never get at him. He always kept just on the right side of the law, until one night the keepers found him at it in the wood, right at the end of the estate. I could show you the place now. It matches with some land that used to belong to an uncle of mine, and as you can imagine, there was a row, and this man Gordy, that was the name, to be sure, Gordy, I thought I should get it. Yep, Gordy. He was lucky enough, poor chap, to shoot a keeper. Well, that was what Francis wanted, and grand juries, you know what they would have been then, and poor Gordy was strung up in double quick time, and I've been shown the place he was buried in, on the north side of the church. You know the way in that part of the world. Anyone that's been hanged or made away with themselves, they bury them that side. And the idea was that some friend of Gordy's, not a relation, because he had none, the poor devil, he was the last of his line, kind of speaks ultima gentis, must have planned to get a hold of Francis's boy and put an end to his line too. I don't know. It's rather an out-the-way thing for an Essex poacher to think of, but, you know... I should say now it looks more as if old Gordy had managed the job himself. Oof. I hate to think of it. Have some whiskey, Williams. The facts were communicated by Williams to Deniston and by him to a mixed company, of which I was one, and the Sadducean professor of Ophiology another. I am sorry to say that the latter, when asked what he thought of it, only remarked, Oh, those Bridgeford people will say anything. A sentiment which met with the reception it deserved. I have only to add that the picture is now in the Ashian Museum and it has been treated with a view to discovering whether sympathetic ink has been used in it but without effect that Mr Britton knew nothing of it save that he was sure it was uncommon and that, though carefully watched, it has never been known to change again. That is a darkly creepy story. I, I really like the way he sort of spans, spins it out so that the painting of the figure kind of crawls across the lawn and it's a great story. I think it's, it really has a lot of great imagery in it. So that was the mezzo tint from Ghost Tales of an Antiquary. Um, and the next we've got the story of an appearance and a disappearance, which like I say, it came from uh, a thin ghost and it's interestingly sort of told over a series of letters so let's get into that one, I guess. We'll jump straight into it. This is the story of an appearance and a disappearance. The letters, which I now publish, were sent to me recently by a person who knows me to be interested in ghost stories. There is no doubt about their authenticity. The paper on which they are written, the ink, and the whole external aspect put their date beyond the reach of question. The only point which they do not make clear is the identity of the writer. He signs with initials only, and as none of the envelopes of the letters are preserved, the surname of his correspondent, obviously a married brother, is as obscure as his own. No further preliminary explanation is needed, I think. Luckily, the first letter supplies all that could be expected. 
Letter 1. Great Crishall, December the 22nd, 1837. My dear Robert, it is with great regret for the enjoyment I am losing, and for a reason which you will deplore equally with myself, that I write to inform you that I am unable to join your circle for this Christmas. But you will agree with me that it is unavoidable when I say that I have within these few hours received a letter from Mrs. Hunt to the effect that our Uncle Henry has suddenly and mysteriously disappeared, and begging me to go down there immediately and join the search that is being made for him. Little as I, or you either, I think, have ever seen of Uncle, I naturally feel that this is not a request that can be regarded lightly, and accordingly I propose to go down there by this afternoon's mail, reaching it late in the evening. I shall not go to the rectory, but put up at the King's Head, and to which you may address letters. I enclose a small draft which you will please make use of for the benefit of the young people. I shall write you daily, supposing me to be detained more than a single day, what goes on, and you may be sure, should the business be cleared up in time to permit of my coming to the manor after all, I shall present myself. I have but a few minutes at my disposal. With cordial greetings to you all and many regrets, believe me, your affectionate brother, W.R. Letter 2 King's Head, December 23rd, 1837 My dear Robert, in the first place, there is as yet no news of Uncle H, and I think you may finally dismiss any idea that I might after all turn up for Christmas. However, my thoughts will be with you, and you have my best wishes for a really festive day. Mind that none of my nephews or nieces expend any fraction of their guineas on presents for me. Since I got here, I have been blaming myself for taking this affair of Uncle H too easily. From what people here say, I gather that there is very little hope that he can still be alive. But whether it is accident or design that carried him off, I cannot judge. The facts are these. On Friday the 19th, he went as usual shortly before five o'clock to read evening prayers at the church. And when they were over, the clerk brought him a message in response to which he set off to pay a visit to a sick person at an outlying cottage the better part of two miles away. He paid the visit and started on his return journey at about half past six. This is the last that is known of him. The people here are very much grieved at his loss. He had been here many years, as you know, and though as you also know, he was not the most genial of men and had more than a little of the martinet in his composition, he seems to have been active in good works and unsparing of trouble to himself. Poor Mrs. Hunt, who has been his housekeeper ever since she left Woodley, is quite overcome. It seems like the end of the world to her. I am glad that I did not entertain the idea of taking quarters at the rectory, and I have declined several kind offers of hospitality from people in the place, preferring as I do to be independent and finding myself very comfortable here. You would, of course wish to know what has been done in the way of inquiry and search. First, nothing was to be expected from investigation at the rectory, and to be brief, nothing has transpired. I asked Mrs Hunt, as others had done before, whether there was either any unfavourable symptom in her master, such as might portend to a sudden stroke or attack of illness, or whether he had ever had reason to apprehend any such thing. But both she and also his medical man were clear that this was not the case. He was quite in his usual health. In the second place, naturally, ponds and streams have been dragged, 
and fields in the neighbourhood, which he is known to have visited last, have been searched, without result. I have myself talked to the parish clerk and, more importantly, have been to the house where he paid his visit. There can be of no question of any foul play on these people's part. The one man in the house is ill in bed and very weak. The wife and the children, of course, could do nothing themselves, nor is there a shadow of a probability that they or any of them should have agreed to decoy poor Uncle H out in order that he might be attacked on the way back. They had told what they knew to several other inquirers already, but the woman repeated it to me. The rector was looking just as usual. He wasn't very long with the sick man. He ain't, she said, like somewhat as a gift in prayer. But there, if he was all that way, however, would the chapel people get their living. He left some money when he went away, and one of the children saw him cross the stile into the next field. He was dressed as he always was, wore his bands. I gather he is nearly the last man remaining who does so, at any rate in this district. You see, I am putting down everything. The fact is that I have nothing else to do, having brought no business papers with me, and, moreover, it serves to clear my own mind and may suggest points which have been overlooked. So I shall continue to write all that passes, even to conversations if need be. You may read or not as you please, but pray keep the letters. I have another reason for writing so fully, but it is not a very tangible one. You may ask if I have myself made any search in the fields near the cottage. Something, a good deal, has been done by others, as I mentioned, but I hope to go over the ground tomorrow. Bow Street has now been informed and will stand down by tonight's coach but I do not think they will make much of the job. There is no snow, which might have helped us. The fields are all grass. Of course, I was on the Quivive for any indication today, both going and returning, but there was a thick mist on the way back, and I was not in trim for wandering about unknown pastures, especially on an evening when bushes looked like men, and a cow lowing in the distance might have been the last trump. I assure you, If Uncle Henry had stepped out from among the trees in a little copse which borders the path at one place, carrying his head under his arm, I should have been very little more uncomfortable than I was. To tell you the truth, I was rather expecting something of the kind, but I must drop my pen for the moment. Mr. Lucas, the curate, is announced. Later. Mr. Lucas has been and gone, and there is not much beyond the decencies of ordinary sentiment to be got from him. I can see there that he has given up any idea that the rector can be alive, and that, so far as he can be, he is truly sorry. I can also discern that, even in a more emotional person than Mr. Lucas, Uncle Henry was not likely to inspire strong attachment. Besides Mr. Lucas, I have had another visitor in the shape of my Boniface, my host of the king's head, who came to see whether I had everything I wished, and who really requires the pen of a boz to do him justice. He was very solemn and weighty at first. Well, sir, he said, I suppose we must bow our head beneath the blow, as my poor wife used to say. So far as I can gather, there's been neither hide nor yet hair of our late respected incumbent scented out as yet, not that he was what the scripture terms a hairy man in any sense of the word. I said as well as I could that I suppose not, but could not help adding that I had heard that he was sometimes a little difficult to deal with. Mr. Bowman looked at me sharply for a moment and then passed in a flash from sullen sympathy to impassioned declamation. When I think, he said, 
of that language that man see fit to employ to me in this ear parlour over no more a matter than a cask of beer. Such a thing, as I told, might happen any day of the week to a man with a family. Though as it turned out, he was quite under a mistake, and that I knew at the time. Only I was that shocked to hear him, I couldn't lay my tongue to the right expression. He stopped abruptly and eyed me with some embarrassment. I only said, Dear me, I'm sorry to hear you had any little differences. I suppose my uncle will be a good deal missed in the parish. Mr Bowman drew a long breath. Ah, yes, he said, your uncle. You'll understand me when I say that for a moment it had slipped my remembrance that he was a relative. And natural enough, I must say, as it should, for as you to bear in any resemblance to... To him, the notion of any such thing is a clean ridiculous. All the same, and I have bore it in my mind, you'll be among the first to feel, I'm sure, as I should have abstained my lips, or rather, I should not have abstained my lips with no such reflections. I assured him that I quite understood, and I was going to have asked him some further questions, but he was called away to see after some business. By the way, you need not take it to your head, that he was anything to fear from the inquiry into poor Uncle Henry's disappearance, though, no doubt, in the watches of the night, it will occur to him that I think he has, and I may expect explanations tomorrow. I must close this letter. It has to go by the late coach. Letter 3, December 25th, 1837 My dear Robert, This is a curious letter to be writing on Christmas Day, and yet, after all, there is nothing much in it, or there may be, you shall be the judge. At least, nothing decisive. The Bow Street men practically say that they have no clue. The length of time and the weather conditions have made all tracks so faint as to be quite useless. Nothing that belonged to the dead man, I'm afraid, no other word will do, has been picked up. As I expected, Mr. Bowman was uneasy in his mind this morning. Quite early I heard him holding forth in a very distinct voice, purposely so, I thought, to the Bow Street officers in the bar, as to the loss that the town has sustained in their rector, and as to the necessity of leaving no stone unturned. He was very great in this phrase, in order to come to the truth. I suspect him of being an orator of repute at convivial meetings. When I was at breakfast, he came to wait on me and took an opportunity, when handling a muffin, to say in a low tone, I hope, sir, you recognise as my feelings towards your relative is not actuated by any taint of what you may call malignity. You can leave the room, Eliza, I will see the gentleman, as all he requires with my own hands. I ask your pardon, sir, but you must be well aware that a man is not always master of himself, and when that man has been hurt, in his mind by the application of expressions which I will go so far as to say had not ought to have been made use of. His voice was rising all this time and his face grown redder. No, sir, and here, if you will permit of it, I should like to explain to you in a very few words the exact state of the bone of contention. This cask, I might more truly call it a firkin of beer. I felt it was time to interpose, and said that I did not see that it would help us very much to go into the matter in detail. Mr Bowman acquiesced, and resumed more calmly. Well, sir, I bow to your ruling, and as you say, be it here or be it there, I don't contribute a great deal, perhaps to the present question. All I wish you to understand 
is that I am as prepared as you are yourself to lend every hand to the business we have before us. And as I took the opportunity to say as much to the officers not three quarters of an hour ago, to leave no stone unturned as may throw even a spark of light on this painful matter. In fact, Mr Bowman did accompany us on our exploration, but though I'm quite sure his genuine wish was to be helpful, I'm afraid he did not contribute to the serious side of it. He appeared to be under the impression that we were likely to meet either Uncle Henry or the person responsible for his disappearance, walking about the fields, and he did a great deal of shading his eyes with his hand and calling our attention by pointing with his stick to distant cattle and labourers. He held several long conversations with old women whom we met and was very strict and severe in his manner, but on each occasion returned to our party saying, Well, I find she don't seem to have no connection with this sad affair. I think you may take it from me, sir, as there's little or no light to be looked from that quarter, not without she's keeping something back intentional. We gained no appreciable result as I told you at starting. The Bow Street men have left the town, whether for London or not, I'm not sure. This evening, I had company in the shape of a bagman, a smartish fellow. He knew what was going forward, even though he was been on the roads for some days about here, he had nothing to tell of suspicious characters. He was very full of a capital Punch and Judy show that he had seen the same day, and asked if it had been here yet and advised me by no means to miss it if it does come. The best punch and the best Toby Dog, he said, he had ever come across. Toby Dogs, you know, are the last new thing in the shows. I have only seen one myself, but before long, all the men will have them. Now why, you will want to know, do I trouble to write all this to you? I am obliged to do it, because it has something to do with another absurd trifle, as you will inevitably say, which in my present state of rather unquiet fancy, nothing more perhaps, I have to put down. It is a dream, sir, which I am going to record, and I must say it is one of the oddest I have had. Is there anything in it beyond what the bagman's talk and Uncle Henry's disappearance could have suggested? You, I repeat, shall judge. I am not in a sufficiently cool and judicial frame to do so. It began with what I can only describe as a pulling aside of curtains, and I found myself seated in a place. I don't know whether it indoors or out. There were people, only a few on either side of me, but I did not recognise them, or indeed think much about them. They never spoke, but so far as I remember, they were all grave and pale-faced and looked fixedly before them. Facing me there was a Punch and Judy show, perhaps rather larger than the ordinary ones, painted with black figures on a reddish-yellow ground. Behind it and on each side was only darkness, but in front there was sufficiency of light. I was strung up to a high degree of expectation and listened every moment to hear the panpipes and the root-toot-toot. Instead of that, there came suddenly enormous, I can use no other word, an enormous single toll of a bell. I don't know from how far off, somewhere behind, little curtain flew up and the drama began. I believe someone once tried to rewrite Punch as a serious tragedy, but whoever he may have been, this performance would have suited him exactly. There was something satanic about the hero. He varied his methods of attack. For some of his victims he lay in wait, and to see his horrible face, it was yellowish-white, I may remark, 
peering round the wings made me think of the vampire in Fuseli's foul sketch. To others, he was polite and carneying, particularly to the unfortunate alien who can only say Shalabala, though what Punch said I never could catch. But with all of them, I came to dread the moment of death. The crack of the stick on their skulls, which in the ordinary way delights me, had here a crushing sound as if the bone was giving way and the victims quivered and kicked as they lay. The baby, it sounded more ridiculous as I go on, but the baby, I am sure, was alive. Punch wrung its neck, and if the choke or squeak which it gave were not real, I know nothing of reality. The stage got perceptibly darker as each crime was consummated, and at last there was one murder which was done quite in the dark, so that I could see nothing of the victim and took some time to effect. It was accompanied by hard breathing and horrid, muffled sounds, and after it, Punch came and sat on the footboard and fanned himself and looked at his shoes, which were bloody, and hung his head on one side and sniggered in so deadly a fashion that I saw some of those besides me cover their faces, and I would gladly have done the same. But in the meantime, the scene behind Punch was clearing and showed not the usual house front, but something more ambitious. A grove of trees and the gentle slope of a hill with a very natural, in fact I should say a real, moon shining on it. Over this there rose slowly an object which I soon perceived to be a human figure with something peculiar about the head. What I was unable at first to see. It did not stand on its feet, but began creeping or dragging itself across the middle distance towards Punch who still sat back to it, and by this time, I may remark, though it did not occur to me at the moment, that all pretense of this being a puppet show had vanished. Punch was still Punch, it's true, but, like the others, was in some sense a live creature, and both moved themselves at their own will. When I next glanced at him, he was sitting in malignant reflection, but in another instant, something seemed to attract his attention and he first sat up sharply and then turned round and evidently caught sight of the person that was approaching him and was in fact very now near. Then indeed did he show unmistakable signs of terror. Catching up his stick, he rushed towards the wood, only just eluding the arm of his pursuer, which was suddenly flung out to intercept him. He was with a revulsion which I cannot easily express that I now saw more or less clearly what his pursuer was like. He was a sturdy figure clad in black and, as I thought, wearing bands. His head was covered with a whitish bag. The chase which now began lasted I do not know how long. Now among the trees, now along the slope of a field, sometimes both figures disappearing wholly for a few seconds and only some uncertain sounds letting one know that they were still afoot. At length there came a moment when Punch, evidently exhausted, staggered in from the left and threw himself down among the trees. His pursuer was not long after him and came looking uncertainly from side to side. Then, catching sight of the figure on the ground, he too threw himself down. His back was turned to the audience. With a swift motion, twitched the covering from his head and thrust his face into that of Punch. Everything on that instant grew dark. There was one long, loud, shuddering scream and I awoke to find myself looking straight into the face of, 
What in the world do you think? But a large owl, which was seated on my windowsill immediately opposite my bed foot, holding up its wings like two shrouded arms. I caught the fierce glance of its yellow eyes, and then it was gone. I heard the single enormous bell again, very likely, as you were saying to yourself, the church clock. But I do not think so. And then I was broad awake. All this, I may say, happened within the last half hour. There was no probability of my getting to sleep again, so I got up, put on clothes enough to keep me warm, and am writing this rigmarole in the first hours of Christmas Day. Have I left out anything? Yes, there was no Toby Dog, and the names over the front of the Punch and Judy booth were Kidman and Gallop, which was certainly not what the bagman had told me to look out for. By this time, I feel a little more as if I could sleep. So this shall be sealed and wafered. Letter 4, December the 26th, 1837 My dear Robert, all is over. The body has been found. I do not make excuses for not having sent off my news by last night's mail for the simple reason that I was incapable of putting pen to paper. The events that attended the discovery bewildered me so completely that I needed what I could get of a night's rest to enable me to face the situation at all. Now I can give you my journal of the day, certainly the strangest Christmas day that ever I have spent or am likely to spend. The first incident was not very serious. Mr Bowman had, I think, been keeping Christmas Eve and was a little inclined to be captured. At least, he was not on foot very early and to judge from what I could hear, Neither men nor maids could do anything to please him. The latter was certainly reduced to tears, nor am I sure that Mr. Bowman succeeded in persevering a manly composure. At any rate, when I came downstairs, it was in a broken voice that he wished me the compliments of the season, and a little later on, when he paid his visit of ceremony at breakfast, he was far from cheerful, even Byronic, I might almost say, in his outlook on life. I don't know, he said, if you think with me, sir, but every Christmas as comes round, the world seems a hollerer thing to me. Why take an example now from what that lays under my own eye? There's my own servant, Eliza. Been with me now for going on 15 years. I thought I could have placed my confidence in Eliza, and yet this very morning, Christmas morning too, of all the blessed days in the year, with the bells a-ringing and all like that, I say this very morning... Had it not been for Providence watching over us all, that girl would have put, indeed I may as go as far as say, had put the cheese on your breakfast table. He saw I was about to speak and he waved his hand at me. It's all very well for you to say, yes Mr Bowman, but you took away the cheese and locked it up in a cupboard, which I did, and have the key here, or not the actual key, one very much about the same size, that's true enough sir, but what do you think is the effect of that action on me? Why, it's no exaggeration for me to say that the ground is cut from under my feet. And yet, when I said as much to Eliza, not nasty, mind you, but just firm-like, what was my return? Oh, she says, well, she says, there wasn't no bones broke. Well, sir, it hurt me, that's all I can say. It hurt me and I don't like to think of it now. There was an ominous pause here, in which I ventured to say something like, Yes, very trying, and then asked at what hour the church service was to be. Eleven o'clock, Mr Bowman said with a heavy sigh. 
<sighs> you won't have no such discourse from poor Mr. Lucas as what you would have done from our late rector. Him and me may have had our little differences, and did do. More's the pity. I could see that a powerful effort was needed to keep him off the vexed question of the cask of beer, but he made it. But I will say this, that a better preacher, nor yet one to stand faster by his rights, or what he considered to be his rights. However, that's not the question now. I, for one, never set under, some might say, was he an eloquent man? And to that, my answer would be, well, there, you're a better right, perhaps, to speak of your own uncle than what I have. Others might ask, did he keep a hold of his congregation? And there again, I should reply, well, that depends. But as I say, yes, Eliza, my girl, I'm coming. Eleven o'clock, sir, and you inquire for the king's head pew. I believe Eliza had been very near the door, and I should consider it in my veil. The next episode was church. I felt Mr Lucas had a difficult task in doing justice to Christmas sentiments, and also to the feeling of disquiet and regret which, whatever Mr Bowman might say, was clearly prevalent. I do not think he rose to the occasion. I was uncomfortable. The organ wolved, you know what I mean. The wind died twice in the Christmas hymn and the tenor bell. I suppose owing to some negligence on the part of the ringers, kept sounding faintly about once in a minute during the sermon. The clerk sent up a man to see to it, but he seemed unable to do much. I was glad when it was all over. There was an odd incident, too, before the service. I went in rather early and came upon two men carrying the parish buyer back to its place under the tower. From what I overheard them saying, it appeared that it had been put out by mistake, by someone who was not there. I also saw the clerk busy folding up a moth-eaten velvet pool. Not a sight for Christmas Day. I dined soon after this, and then, feeling disinclined to go out, took my seat by the fire in the parlour with the last number of Pickwick, which I had been saving up for some days. I thought I could be sure of keeping awake over this, but I turned out as bad as our friend Smith. I suppose it was half past two when I was roused by a piercing whistle and laughing, and talking voices outside in the marking place. It was a punch and judy. I had no doubt the one that Mr Bagman had seen, and I was half delighted, half not. The latter because of my unpleasant dream came back to me so vividly. But anyhow, I determined to see it, and I sent out Eliza with a crown piece to the performers and a request that they would face my window if they could manage it. The show was a very smart new one. The names of the proprietors, I need hardly tell you, were Italian, Foresta and Calpigi. The Toby dog was there, as I had been led to expect. All the town turned out, but it did not obstruct my view, for I was at the large first-floor window and not ten yards away. The play began on the stroke of a quarter to three by the church clock. Certainly it was very good, and I was soon relieved to find that the disgust that my dream had given me for Punch's onslaughts on his ill-starred visitors was only transient. I laughed at the demise of the turncock, the foreigner, the beadle, and even the baby. The only drawback was the Toby dogs developing a tendency to howl in the wrong place. Something had occurred, I suppose, to upset him, and something considerable, for I forget exactly at what point, but he gave a most lamentable cry, leapt off the footboard, and shot away across the marketplace and down a side street. There was a stage wait, but only a brief one. 
I suppose the men decided it was no good going after him and that he was likely to turn up again at night. We went on. Punch dealt faithfully with Judy and in fact with all comers. And then came the moment when the gallows was erected and the great scene with Mr Ketch was to be enacted. It was now that something happened of which I certainly not yet see the import fully. You have witnessed an execution and know what the criminal's head looks like with the cap on. If you are like me, you never wish to think of it again and I do not willingly remind you of it. It was just such a head as that that I, from my somewhat higher post, saw in the inside of the show box. But the first audience did not see it. I expected it to emerge into their view, but instead of that, there slowly rose for a few seconds an uncovered face with an expression of terror upon it, of which I have never imagined the like. It seemed as if the man, whoever he was, was being forcibly lifted, with his arms somehow pinioned or held back towards the little gibbet on the stage, I could just see the nightcapped head behind him. Then there was a cry and a crash. The whole showbox fell over backwards, kicking legs were seen among the ruins, and then two figures, as some said, I can only answer for one, were visible running at top speed across the square and disappearing in a lane which leads to the fields. Of course, everybody gave chase. I followed, but the pace was killing, and very few were in literally at the death. It happened in a chalk pit. The man went over the edge quite blindly and broke his neck. They searched everywhere for the other until it occurred to me to ask whether he had ever left the marketplace. At first everyone was sure that he had, but when we came to look, he was there under the show box, dead too. But in the chalk pit, it was that poor Uncle Henry's body was found with a sack over the head, the throat horribly mangled. It was a peaked corner of the sack sticking out of the soil that attracted attention. I cannot bring myself to write in greater detail. I forgot to say that the men's real names were Kidman and Gallop. I feel sure I've heard them, but no one here seems to know anything about them. I am coming to you as soon as I can after the funeral. I must tell you when we meet what I think of it all. That was the story of an appearance and a disappearance by M.R. James. Uh, from that one was from a thin ghost, the anthology um, that came out in 1919. So yeah, if you wanted to read more on that one, it's a thin ghost. Um, I, I really recommend um, the first two I've read all the way through, and the others I've read bits and pieces of. But the first two I recommend are great. And uh, so that's um, Ghost Tales of an Antiquary and more Ghost Tales of an Antiquary. So I recommend both of those all the way through. Um, actually, I don't want this to sound like an advert, although it's undoubtedly going to sound like an advert. But if you go on Audible, if you're if you're a member of Audible, um, you can actually get... There's loads of MR James on there uh, if you're interested in hearing more. And just this, gone, this Christmas gone, I think, and sort of Christmas in January, BBC released a new um, collection of MR James stories on there. Um, which is is well worth a listen. So yeah, if if you're a member of Audible, then check that out. And if you're not, like I say, this is going to sound like a terrible advert, but I actually mean this in a genuine way. Like, go check out audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories, I think. The link is in the show notes anyway. And you get a free book, so you could check that out. You know, you could start a trial, get your free book and and listen to some MR James, get it for free. Um, But like I say, I don't really want to make that an advert, but... um, kind of 
it's going to sound that way, isn't it? Anyway, uh, yeah, if you'd like to contact me, please go ahead and do so. That's uh, contact at darkhistories.com is the email. I'm also on all social media. Um, if you go to darkhistories.com, you'll be able to find links to all of that, as well as links to our Discord. Um, we've got a really nice little community over there. Um, if you want to come along, you're more than welcome. Everyone's invited, basically. It's, so it's a really friendly little community. So yeah, you can find out ways of doing that on that website as well. Otherwise, I'll see you in a couple of weeks for regular episodes going forward. Um, Say, I hope this episode was enjoyable despite the circumstances. And I'll be doing a live stream next week um, and a new episode in two weeks. So yeah, if you want to come along to the live stream, there'll be all the details will be going out on that on social media. And um, if you want to read up more about the live streams and that, say darkhistories.com you'll find everything there so yeah thanks very much for listening stay safe stay healthy i'll I'll see you real soon cheers thanks for listening sleep tight